Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. I hope this morning finds you all with a uh, If you haven't received your COVID vaccination, you're well on your way to getting it. Uh, This is a a time of change, and we are hoping we're all going to be back to normal very soon, hopefully by summer. And this morning, I have a guest. Her name is Chastity Laster. Uh, We've had uh, a couple of mitigation specialists on in the past few months, and uh, Charity is one of those mitigation specialist, but hers kind of has a different track, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, Good morning. Good morning, Charity. How are you? Good morning. How are you, Francie? Really good. You're calling in from Alabama, right? That's right. Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, Alabama. How's the weather there right now? It's good right now. Not too humid today. Humid, huh? You guys have had some struggles (laughs) lately. Um, yeah, the uh, tornado season for us is tornado season. So every week we're kind of looking at tornadoes or bad thunderstorms. I can't imagine. I lived in Oklahoma one part of my life, and uh, <laughs> we were all in the summertime. We were always going to the shelter every day, like four o'clock, when mm-hmm. the tornadoes would come through. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's crazy. pretty much that's pretty much us right now. So yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, so Charity, you and I talked on the phone, and, and I'm really interested in the process you use for as a mitigation specialist. Would you tell me um, or tell all of us how you perceive what you do as a mitigation specialist? Yeah, so my first, you know, step in my, in any case, is just to go, of course, and introduce myself and Usually I do that with attorneys. Um, they like to introduce me and kind of explain what the roles are. Um, but I feel like I really get into the meat and potatoes when I see my client by, by myself. And so because that's where, you know, I start, you know, somewhat of a relationship when I meet them with their attorney. But the next go around, you know, I plan to really spend time and establish that rapport with the patient. And, you know, my background is social work, so... You know, building rapport is like one of the essential things that you need to do with any patient, client, person that you're serving. So the clients that I meet um, with my capital murder cases, my biggest goal is establishing that rapport because I know I'm not going to get the family jewels unless they trust me. Right. Um, That's that's kind of where I start out. So tell us, uh, Charity, about your background. How did... What was your progress and what was your path? Right. So I started off, you know, bachelor's in social work, um, and I've worked with different populations. So um, my initial job was just, you know, kind of resources, financial resources, housing assistance, and 
I quickly moved from that into serious mental illnesses. And so I worked with um, individuals who had serious mental illnesses and were kind of in state custody, being released from state institutions with serious mental illnesses. And from there, I worked with um, people, you know, living with HIV and AIDS. And so um, with that group, you know, I had people with HIV and AIDS. They also had serious mental illnesses. And then they they also had a substance use program. And so kind of coordinated substance use programs, transitional housing, serious mental illnesses, um, just far as like day rehab and residential treatment centers. And um, from there, I went to the public defender's office. But I Mm. do think that kind of the criminal justice, um, I was thinking about this today, and I kind of talked with this with some of our NASAMs executive committees that, you know, the criminal justice system has always been a piece of my work, no matter where I worked, be it with, Mm -hmm. like, mental health authority, with, you know, the aid service organizations, or even you know, with the community financial resources, it was always that link between criminal justice. And so before I worked at the public defender's office and was leading a team of social workers doing mitigation, um, I was still going to courtrooms, you know, with my Mm -hmm. patients who had SMIs because that, you know, that mental health component and the criminal justice, justice system and jails are just so interconnected, you know, when when people can't get into the hospitals to be stabilized, they end up in the jail, you know? Yeah, that's and, for sure. Uh, yeah, and so I was, you know, going to court with different clients, you know, really from the beginning. And uh, it's actually just been a part of kind of my social work practice the, the my entire time of practicing. Well, uh, a couple, let's back up a couple uh seconds here. You mentioned NASAM, that's the National Alliance mm-hmm. of Sentencing Advocates and Mitigation Specialists, correct? Right, right. And, so and yeah, what, I'm, I'm on the executive committee with them. Okay. <clears throat> and what kind of a role does NASAM play with mitigation specialists? What is their role and, and how do you get involved with them? Yeah, so NASAM is, you know, they're part of NLADA um, and so you can go to NLADA website and uh, go to the NASAMS tab. And so NASAMS really is a network for mitigation specialists. You know, if you're interested in this field, we do a certification program at least once a year to introduce just this idea of mitigation, um, investigation, interviewing to, to people who are interested. And so... Um, we do that at least once a year, but then we host a lot of sessions just to information, you know, being that uh, group that anyone can reach out to to ask questions if you're in a different state. You know, if you go to a NASAMS executive committee member or just, you know, anyone you know on the NASAMS committee, then they can try to connect you with someone. Um, they'll give you resources. They even give sample, you know, reports. So it's very beneficial to mitigation specialists and people wanting wanting to enter the field and or network. And are there? Um, I have lots of questions <laughs> here, Terry. Are, <laughs> are there any requirements to enter the field of uh, mitigation? 
You know, I think that it's so broad. You know, obviously I have a social work background, but then we have, you know, our president has a paralegal background. Uh, the president of NASAMS has a paralegal background. And, um, and then we have investigators. And so, you know, board certified investigators. But it's definitely, you know, as you know, Francie, it's just the unique skill set of being able to storytell, interview, and um, write, you know, mm. orally and give those demonstrative aids. And so mitigation is so much more than just writing the story. It goes into... Um, videos, you know, sometimes I've done cases where I felt like the writing was good, but the video was even better, you know, Mm -hmm. because you really want them to see certain things. You know, if I say that my client is a great artist, that's just not good enough. You know, I want them to see the art because once you see the skill, it's just like, wow, it really humanizes the person like, oh, wow, this person is really talented, you know, Um, and it's not my words can't really, you know, picture tells a thousand words. So Yeah, so tell us more about doing videos on, in this area. Yeah, so, um, you know, I've done on even, you know, because now I'm just doing capital murder cases, but while I was at the public defender's office, we would do, you know, mitigation on any case. And so I've had cases that were just murder cases, but, you know, doing videos was really beneficial. We kept them to about a five to seven minute window, but instead of, you know, doing the report and using your character witnesses there, um, mm-hmm. we would record the character witnesses. Um, we bring them all in, record snippets from each person and then edit the videos. And as they talk about, I know in one case, probably my favorite video that I've done when we talked about, you know, his artwork, we just would span into that artwork, allow the artwork to kind of pop up so that you get a visual of, you know, what, what the client can do. Um, and pictures from, you know, we've had, you know, I've had clients who were veterans, but then showing them in their military gear, um, showing them, you know, with military friends, and it, it makes such a big difference. Um, once you see that person in that role. So your objective as a mitigation specialist on a capital case is to humanize the person to the jury and save their life, essentially. Right, exactly. You know, that's already definitely, been, that's exactly in a nutshell. Yeah, so they've already been convicted of the crime. And mm-hmm. they're, uh, and I believe it's the same all over the country there's a second trial that determines their sentence right and so i mean you know the the trial happens and so once the once uh you know defendant gets a guilty in that trial then the mitigation phase go is it immediately follows so my you know my case really starts early on so way before the trial um, if you have a capital case, you get the mitigation specialist involved because if the client is, you know, found guilty, then that, that mitigation phase is going to directly follow the trial. And Charity, how often do you testify? I haven't had to testify often, but I'm always willing. 
Um, I know it really varies from person to person with mitigation specialists. Some aren't willing to testify. Some are. Um, I'm willing to testify. I mean, basically, you're going, you know, you're going to be asked about the work that you've done. So I, I really don't have a problem um, with testifying, but I don't know. Um, you know, there have been there are varying opinions about that from other mitigation specialists. What what are the varying opinions? You know, I was going to say I don't know what their reasoning for not um, wanting to testify. You know, I, but I feel like if I have written something, I've investigated, I've you know put this person's storyline together with their help. I'm I'm fine with testifying to everything that I've said. Um, of course, it's the prosecutor's job to try to poke holes in whatever you've done, but I usually feel pretty confident that if I've done this investigation, I'm willing to, you know, testify to whatever I found. Um, so I'm not really sure why some people aren't willing to do that, but um, so far I've been willing to testify whenever I, I need to. Thankfully, I haven't needed to often, you know, because it just depends on if you get to that mitigation phase. Mm-hmm. You know, you do the mitigation report, you do the investigation, you do all the legwork. And, and thankfully, several of my clients ha- have not needed me to um, testify. So, hmm. that's, you know. Well, that's good. Yeah. That meant. And what happened in those cases? Um, in some, in most cases, you know, they get something lesser than capital murder. And so in some cases, you know, they get an offer that's lesser. They get to take a plea. Um, you know, I had one last year, right before COVID hit that, you know, the jury, it was a, you know, split jury. So they couldn't come to a decision during the trial. Um, and then they wound up and I was ready. I was kind of waiting um, we've done a lot of work, but they end up, you know, not being able to come to a decision. And after that, they offered him something lesser than capital murder. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. so it already, um, it had gone, it had done the guilt phase and found him guilty. Mm-hmm. And no, then, they didn't. They couldn't. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they, didn't. So they couldn't find him guilty. So they had a hung jury on that case? They had a hung jury on the case, right. Okay. Okay. So uh, another question, you you mentioned SMIs. Could you explain what SMIs are? Oh, yeah. Serious mental illnesses. I talk in acronyms so much. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And that comes from being around medical people and mental health, just social work stuff. But, yeah, SMIs, yeah. Okay. All right. And uh, and also, um, you mentioned the certification through uh, NASAM. What is that certification? What what kind of a test is that? What do they cover? So we offer a certificate. It's not necessarily you can walk away and say, oh, I have a NASAM certification. But we do just offer a certificate program that you can go through um, a two-day program, uh, just all day about introduction to mitigation with NASAMs, and then receive a certificate that you've gone through that. But there's not, it's not a just certification um, that you walk away with. Oh, I see. It's not, do you, do you take a test right. at the end of it? 
No, 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 no. Okay. You don't. So it's not a certification in that sense. No. So it, I guess it must have covered the process and uh, various mm-hmm. uh, various skills or developing various skills to uh, gather information. Right. Exactly. It covers, you know, the investigation. It it, it covers the records required. Um, and I say required, but it just goes over the various records that you need to look for um, in a mitigation case. And then there's an interviewing session and we've done storytelling, which I thought was really good. Just, you know, about writing in general. So, mm-hmm. but they offer, offer samples, you know, they have sample reports. They give sample records for, um, you know, people interested in mitigation to look at. So it's really just an introduction to this field. Um, that's, that's generally. And we usually have attorneys that, you know, there are attorneys that are mitigation specialists. And, you know, you asked about what field someone might go into. But, you know, we have attorneys that are mitigation specialists, social workers, paralegals, investigators. So it's kind of a wide range of individuals that would attend something like this, but anyone who's really interested in doing mitigation and not just capital cases, but could be juvenile cases or the like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now with sentencing reform, uh, it's happening even with resentencing as well. Right, right, exactly. So your education... Uh, is uh, ama- pretty amazing. <laughs> it sounds like you've been in, in school most of your life. <laughs> well, it doesn't feel like that. I'm, I'm just looking at your bio, Charity. And uh-huh. so <laughs> you, um, you got your social work, you, you got your degree in social work, a master's in social work. Uh, you had a, what was your bachelor's in? It was in social work. So my bachelor's, work. bachelor's and master's are in social work. Okay. And then you decided to go to law school. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. So you, not because you wanted to be an attorney, but just because you wanted to have the legal knowledge? I did. I wanted, I was, you know, after I got to the public defender's office and, um, was heavily involved in mitigation. Then I became interested in, in, you know, the law. And so I said, wow, let's see, you know, let's, let's go to law school, you know, and, and see what this is about. And so I was like, if nothing else, this will be helpful um, in mitigating my cases to understand what's happening on the other side of things. Um, I would say, obviously, law school is not all criminal law. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, I would say that, you know, I went there with the thought of criminal law and, you know, as a social worker, my passion is is assisting people. And so one of the social work ethics is advocacy. And I thought, okay, I think this law degree will help me better understand, you know, in what ways can I advocate for, you know, individuals that I work with um, as a social worker. And so... I think that um, no matter what, I think that law school was very beneficial. I enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed it. It was something that um, 
you know, I'm, I'm a, I have two little ones and a family. And so law school was really like my hobby, you know, it was really mm. something to enjoyable to do after, um, after hours. Cause I continued to work while I was doing that. But, um, I definitely, you know, think that I will practice in some form. Um, mitigation is going to continue to be a primary thing that I do. But I plan to, I plan to uh, take the bar, and I, I have plans to pass the bar. <laughs> but um, <laughs> That's a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good plan. I have to say it out loud because uh, I, I do believe in, like, self-fulfilling prophecy. So I, I plan to take it. I think that... Um, after going to law school, I think it's beneficial to anyone to really uh, understand the law, practicing or not. I think it's just a good thing to understand, and I think it's helpful, too, for me understanding more of what's happening on the legal side and the cases. Um, but I don't, I would say this, I guess the disclaimer, I don't have any plans to practice criminal law. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think mitigation would be it for me on that side of things. Well, Charity, now you've put out to the world that you're going to pass the bar, so you have to. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. That's okay. I'll, I'll be up to the challenge. But, you know, uh, yeah, I'll just be up to the challenge. I think nothing, whether well, I say nothing, uh, beats a failure but a try, right? So how, when did you finish? Yeah. When, did you, when did you graduate finished, from law school? Yes, yeah, so I graduated from law school last May. And um, my plan was just to take my time because I'm still working and and doing my capital cases. And I took the MPRE, so the ethics portion, in August. And um, I decided to just, I I passed that. And so I decided to just wait um, for taking the bar because I needed to kind of budget my time and, and, you know, have time to actually study. I've had different projects and some cases I'm working on now that I feel I want to focus on that. And once I have a moment, then I'll start studying for the bar and take it. How old are your little ones? So I have a son that will be nine in two weeks and a daughter that's currently five. You have your hands full. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so sleeping is... Uh, Overrated, rated, right? <laughs> no, no. I I am a person that has to get my rest, and so I'm a nine o'clock type of person. We go to sleep about nine o'clock, but I do okay. wake up pretty early. So yeah, no, they lot. are. It's it's a lot going on. It's a lot, but but I I tell people I don't think life would be interesting. If uh, if I didn't, I think if I didn't have all the things going on, I'd be bored, you know? Mm-hmm. So how, how yeah. often do you have a capital case? Um, Pretty often. I So during the pandemic, because I had one that was, um, you know, we had the hung jury right before everything shut down. And then I had another one that was just ongoing. And I had a I had a, I had three at that time, and it was another. Actually, I'm saying three. Probably had four, two that were kind of finished, um, two that were active, and one that I was going to get started, but um, they weren't able to do the order before 
uh, you know, everything shut down. So I'm actually just now getting the order on the other one I should have had last year this week. So um, I since I've started, I've, I've pretty much had a good number of cases kind of keep flowing. Have you ever worked with Brian Stevenson? I haven't. No, I haven't worked with Brian Stevenson, but I'm a fan like all of the rest of the world. Right. Um, yeah, I think that his work is, and I'm, it's, you know, it's, it's awesome that, you know, he is, you know, so heavily tied to Alabama. And so I've been able to um, hear him speak. Um, and I've been able to, you know, go to book signings and, you know, just locally because he's here, you know, he's here often. So if, for those that don't know, Brian Steven, Stevenson is um, a well-known attorney in Alabama, well-known advocate, um, the founder of Equal Justice Initiative, um, the attorney for Anthony Ray Hinton. Have you met uh, Anthony Ray Hinton? I have. You know, I've, I've been able to hear him speak as well. So um, with both of them being here in Alabama. Uh, a, a group of us were in Montgomery the week before the country shut down for COVID. <laughs> and uh, he came and spoke to our group. Uh, it was, uh, and it, he's also spoken at the death penalty conference in California when he, not oh, long wow. after he was released. Yeah. Have you, have you ever come out to the death penalty conference in California? No, no, I haven't, but um, I'm, I'm making plans. I know we talked about, uh, about the death penalty conference there and I was thinking I should plan to come next year. You maybe next year it'll be in person. This year it was virtual. It was interesting right. as virtual, but uh um, so you definitely should get in contact with me if you decide to do that. Yeah, I def- I will. I, I hope that the world kind of opens back up because I'd love to come in person uh, for that conference next year. That's that's the hope is that it'll be in person. I'll be able to take a trip there um, and maybe vacation a little bit as well to see the sites. Maybe I'll take a break from some of the things I'm doing. Yeah, and you know, I I probably left uh, left that open ended uh, when I, we were talking about Anthony Ray Hinton. There may be people that don't know who he is. He spent. Uh, mm-hmm. Why don't you Why don't you talk about who Anthony Ray is? So Anthony Ray Hinton is one of Brian Stevenson's um, clients, and so he he speaks about him when he you know when Brian Stevenson speaks. But Anthony Ray Hinton was on. Uh, he was on in on death row in Alabama. Um, and so Brian Stevenson, you know, meets Anthony Ray Hinton, uh, as, as a young lawyer and, you know, asks if he can assist with his case. And, um, Anthony Ray had basically, you know, it was a lot of, uh, you know, issues with the evidence regarding his case. And so one thing was the ballistics on the gun that was, you know, he was accused of um, shooting and killing a white female, I believe. But um, a lot of ballistics, a lot of witnesses, things didn't match up very well. But Anthony was there. I can't say for how long, but he was there on death row 
uh, for a while. I don't know if you know Francie, how long he was there. Um, 30 years, I think but, it was. Yeah, but he, uh, you know, Brian Stevenson was able to build a, a really positive rapport with Anthony Ray um, in prison and, you know, kind of convinced him to allow him to work on his case. And, and now, obviously, Anthony Ray Hinton is out. Um, he was able to, you know, be released and have those charges uh, dropped on his death, death row case, his capital case. And so it was a very victorious thing for Ryan Stevenson. But I think that, I think what, I guess, in some of this is what we talked about previously, Francie. I think what was... Um, most, most, I guess, encouraging, inspiring to me about Brian Stevenson and Anthony Ray Hinton's relationship was the rapport that they built. You know, Brian Stevenson is an attorney, but I think that from his book and his speaking um, about Anthony Ray Hinton's case, you, you can hear him um, sharing, you know, some of his life with Anthony Ray Hinton and building this, you know, relationship. Uh, as I said, to get some of the family jewels, to get that trust that you have to have in these types of um, cases, you know, where someone's life is on the line, having that rapport with the client and their family is so key and so critical to your work. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Charity, we're going to take a quick break um, just to uh, feature our sponsors here. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, 
Here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Charity Lester, and she's a licensed uh, clinical social worker. She is a mitigation specialist. She's going to be getting her uh, doctorate, your, her Juris Doctoral. She has her Juris Doctorate. She's going to be sitting for the bar, and she has many hats. She's a mom. She's, she's a, <laughs> she works on capital cases. So we were just talking, Charity, about uh, Brian Stevenson and Anthony Ray Hinton and the relationship they had, and and um, which c- brings to mind: Do you tell your clients personal stories about yourself to gain that rapport? I do some, and so. You know, this is kind of a, you know, with social work, we have professional boundaries. And uh, I guess almost like the witnessing versus not testifying in a capital case, there there's a class of people that say share nothing. <laughs> and then there's a group that say that share some. And I think because, you know, building a relationship, a normal relationship goes, you know, you tell me something, I tell you something. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a dance of sharing information with each other and building trust, but then in professional relationships and usually in social work relationships, you tell the client nothing and they tell you everything. But Uh with my capital murder cases and my capital clients, I tell them some. And, you know, in talking about Brian Stevenson, I think he did that from what I could read of what he's done and from what he speaks of doing. It sounds like he does some of that, which I thought was brilliant, um, because it makes you human. It makes the relationship just a little more natural and a little more real. Um, And so I I had a client that I met with, one of the active clients that I had throughout the pandemic, and I would speak with him often. And, I mean, it was as simple as talking about sports, um, because I'm – you know, huge sports fan. I, I played all kind of sports as a kid, and I still enjoy watching football and basketball. And that was something that he did, you know, as a kid. And we were able to just, you know, have a friendly banter that wasn't about his case and wasn't about just the mitigation, um, but it really was a check-in with him and allowing him freedom to talk about something that was real for him, you know? Mm-hmm. For sure. Some something that you can find a common interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So in social work, we we look at like you know matching, mirroring, and utilization as techniques to build rapport with um, patients or clients that you're working with. And if you're in front of them, you know that may look like it's it's the unconscious thing that happens. Someone folds their arms and, and you fold your arms as well. And now your body language is mirroring each other in, mm-hmm. in some kind of way that that really unconsciously makes you feel familiar. Um, or here in Alabama, you know, this is, this is University of Alabama, Crimson Tide country. And so if I walk in and I see someone with the Alabama anything, I, I might say roll tide, you know. Um, just to, right. but, but unbelievable, you know, unbelievably just the roll tide just opens them right up. You know, they laugh just like you, Francie. And, and now the guard is down just a little bit more. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So 
what has been your favorite case? It sounds like the the your client with the artwork might be, but is that your favorite case? Yeah, that's hard to say. You know, I mean, I don't know. Each each report, each client is different and so unique. Um, one of the active cases, the hung jury, was a client who um, was such a good writer. You know, sometimes people tell you they have their subjective view of their abilities. Um, and so this guy said, well, I was, a, you know, I was really, I'm a really good writer. I write uh, stories and I, um, you know, I really, I have this passion for writing. And so he shared with me um, a book that he had written in jail. And, I mean, it was awesome. I mean, it was just, hmm. I laughed, I cried, I, I was sad, and I was happy um, for his, like, character. And, I mean, hmm. every person is so unique. It's just the joy of meeting, meeting each person um, and getting to know about their life. And it's, I don't know, you really, I, I'm really appreciative for them letting me in um, because they don't have to. Right. You know, it's in their best interest, but they have to be convinced of that. So I can't say that one person was necessarily my favorite person. Um, I have, I guess, my favorites in the work that I've done where I feel like, wow, I'm really happy with that particular report or that video is, I think, pretty mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how, many, how many capital cases have you actually done, Charity? Have you kept track? I don't know. I haven't kept track. I probably should go back and start keeping track. I haven't kept track. Um, I think when I tie that in with the people that I've like worked with, just that you know, with the public defender's office, we would do videos on things as I said, lesser than a capital murder. So, um, I can't tell you how many people we had come through there. I mean. You know, just one attorney has, you know, public defenders everywhere um, have a huge caseload. Just one attorney within the office probably had 200 cases, you know? Mm. I know, it's crazy. Um, I don't know how they yeah, do it. Yeah, so, no, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And, you know, if they gave us just a inspection of the cases that they had, we, we were turning out lots of reports all the time. So how does a report for a mitigation differ from a report from a uh, guilt-based uh, investigation report? So the mitigation report, um, you know, from a social work perspective, is, is a biopsychosocial. You know, this is, it's basically a biopsychosocial that you're telling about their, um, you know, medical issues, their family history. You know, you're you're telling about this person's kind of person and environment story. Um, And so I don't know how the investigator, I, I mean, I don't, we've talked about this. I think that basically we're doing a similar job with as far as the investigators go. Um, but I think the perspectives on what we're doing may be a little different by training. So do you um, gather 
are, do you gather records yourself and then mm-hmm. um, uh, distill them into chronological order, like a like a table, a date, right. timetable? You do that, right? And so, yeah, that's that's um, one of the I guess second things is first meeting the client, starting this rapport building, and number two is finding out what records I need to request. And so, you know, just like I talked about in the record session that we usually do with NASAM, um, you know, I'm looking for school records, I'm looking for medical records, mental health records, um, anything with the client's name on it. You know, it could be yearbooks. And I'm really, what I'm really looking for are the people that um, are those third-party witnesses you know, not the family members that I think may be biased, but um, the person, the teacher, or the principal. Um, if your if your client was a rock star, then it's likely that uh, they'll be remembered. But then, if they weren't, if they were, you know, getting into a lot of trouble, they're likely to be remembered years later. Um, mm-hmm. But the records really tell a story that you know, someone's memory may not as well. You know, what was written down is so key that, you know, what was written down at that particular time that you get a hold of versus what someone now has, you know, revamped in their mind to tell you. Um, so, yeah, the gathering the records. So I gather the records, I sum- summarize them, and um, for some people, like, uh, one of the active people I had last year, a lot of them creating the timeline that, you know, if trauma is a theme that I find, because you'll, you, a lot of times I find things in a person's life that like, okay, this was a person with a lot of trauma. It was like mm-hmm. trauma at age three and then mm-hmm. five and then seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh gosh, 12, this happened. And so I want to highlight this theme that I found and so I will do a timeline, a visual again, kind of that demonstrative aid to show show you and not just tell you, you know, reading it in the report is different than when you see this timeline, this visual look like, wow, this has been a lot of trauma. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, and how, uh, if you were to, if you were to testify regarding a case like that, uh, how would you portray that timeline? So, you know, I would I would just have to talk through what happened. Um, obviously, my testimony is going to be based off what the attorney asked me. So sometimes, you know, I have a thing. I have things that I I provide, um, and the attorney may ask me about it on the stand, or they may not. Um, but you know, it's going to be based, they'll, they'll ask about whatever parts they would like to highlight. But, of course, you know, my my whole portfolio that I create is passed over. It's given over for them to review the full thing. You know, they may have their own things they think are key. Um, usually if a client has trauma or some major thing that we can talk about and explain um, as far as, their, you know, biopsychosocial impact of 
you know, what trauma does to this client, how that impacts their decision-making and executive thinking. Um, those things are critical to bring out. It's not just, you know, mitigation is not just a sob story. It's a true story of what's happened to the person over the course of their life and then how that impacts their growth and development as a person. Um, it really explains how did we get here, you know, and how any human who is maybe, you know, not a monster would get to this point based off of the experiences that they've had. Um, I probably have gone on a soapbox there with you, Francie, but... No, no, that's okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm suspecting that you spend a lot of time managing witnesses uh, during that mitigation phase of the trial. Right, the, I do. Since you're the um, contact. Yeah. Right. I'm usually the contact person. Um, because I'm building a relationship with the client and their family, um, the client often, you know, their family a lot of times will contact me. Hey, have you talked to my son, relative, whoever this is? I had a aunt that was really close to one of my clients that we just finished up with. And so it was regular contact with her. Mom was deceased, so she was kind of mom to this um, client. And so um, she was able to just, you know, call me regularly, ask about how he's doing. Um, hey, I'm, you know, when's this hearing? Just giving updates. Um, and I, you know, again, I think it's all about relationships. Throughout COVID, I would check on my client's family, too. How are you guys doing? Is everyone, you know, safe? Right. Um, right. Yeah. And so if if it's actually in trial, are you there to to make sure the witnesses get there and they they know what to do and kind of manage that part as well? Right. So usually I'll contact them, just giving them an update since I am that go-between of like this is you know, what time you need to be where and, and, you know, but because in some cases, if I'm going to testify, I'm asked also to not be at the trial. So right. um, while, while yeah. I'd love to sit there and see what's going on, I'm not actually there unless we go to this mitigation phase and I'm actually mm-hmm. called, called as a witness. So right. um, I get to, you know, keep in contact and kind of manage things behind the scenes um, until I'm actually needed to show up. So one of the things uh, that seems to be really difficult to access is, you know, your clients are typically cooperative with giving up information, but what if you want to delve into the mental health of the relatives, the mom, Mm -hmm. the dad, and and those folks, how do you how do you do that? Because that's very sensitive you know, area, right? And I, I have to go back to this starting off as a relationship. You know, I in one of the la- that case one of the cases last year, mom had been um, absent from the client's life for a significant period of time because she and in, in in my first meeting with her, you know, they were guarded. Um, they were kind of putting on their best face, uh, not telling me about what was going on. But mm-hmm. after just talking for a while, after just being a regular, you know, human, just getting information um, and sharing some, 
they didn't want me to leave. I was I was finally ready to get up and go, but she was telling me about her, um, you know, issues, her history with alcohol and cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, she was very open about her issues with alcohol, cocaine, her and several of her children's um, problems with drugs as well, and how that impacted her parenting of my client. And so um, you'll be surprised, I think. I think as a social worker, I'm often surprised. You'll be surprised what people will tell you when you make it normal. Um, Because my thinking is everyone has some issue. I don't know where, you know, you fall on the spectrum. But even for me, I have my things that I fall somewhere on a spectrum. And so I think that, you know, making people... Um, not, you know, making them not feel judged and giving you this information and make it normalizing the fact that people in general, most people, I think probably all people know someone who struggled with mental health or substance, you know, use issues, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like mm-hmm. uh, it's easier for people to talk about addiction today because there's been so much publicity mm-hmm. about it and so much information about opiate addiction and even street drugs, mm-hmm. you know, and what happens with self-medication. Right. Um, right. But, and I think that, you know, with the street drugs, well, I say with the opioid epidemic, it's no longer just like a taboo street drug thing. It's like you went to your doctor, you started taking opioids and and now you're dependent on them. Mhm. So, yeah. what, but what about uh areas of mental health like uh maybe there's uh schizophrenia in the family or you know some kind of a psychotic uh person that had a psychotic break. How do you get into those areas because those um those seem to be more sensitive and uh, family secrets for example. How do you get into the right. family secrets? The molestation the kid that was molested mm-hmm. by the uncle. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, that's where records can also be helpful. If they're not telling you, a lot of times those things will be noted in the records. That, you know, if you are able to get records for, and I've seen that a lot in the records, that, well, mom, you know, family has a history of mental health issues. That mom is bipolar or mom has schizophrenia, um, sister has major depression. Sometimes those things will come out. If, if you know, the family is just tight-lipped, uh, they won't tell you these things. You know, they'll, there's likely a neighbor, and again, I've said teachers have been so helpful to get the perspective of the person's sixth-grade teacher. That Well, you know, what I remember is that mom um, was having a lot of struggles the kid was tardy to school a lot because of X, Y, and Z, you know. So those kind of contacts and character witnesses that you find through your investigation are really helpful if the family's tight-lipped. But um, I think when you normalize things, people usually, just I guess as a social worker, people usually tell me what, what was going on. That's probably well. You have you have great skills, Charity. So <laughs> I can see how it would be easy for people to talk to you. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's just great skills. Um, I probably am just a, a commoner, and that's why they saw oh, this is just an everyday person. 
I don't think I have great skin, but I think a lot of times people will tell you about it. Sometimes the clients, you know, tell me something about the family, and they don't, and they, but they're like, okay, but don't tell mom I told you. Right. You know, exactly. this is like a 40-year-old client, and they're like, <laughs> I don't want, I do need to release this to someone to, to get it off my chest, but like, don't tell them I said this about them. Don't tell my mama. That's usually what you get. Right. Don't tell mama I told you, <laughs> but, you know. This was what was really happening. <laughs> and then that's, you have how, to that's go. how I know that we have a good relationship now, because you're like, okay, don't tell them. Yeah. So, right. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. You know, we're we're almost to the end of our hour, Charity. It's been a ni- just a pleasure talking to you. Um, what advice would you give to somebody that's interested in getting into the mitigation field? I would say definitely go to the NLADA.org website. Um, that's the National Legal Aid and Defender Association website. And um, just, you know, get on our NASAM page, reach out to anyone, um, any of the NASAM members. Um, and, you know, we are just an email away. We respond pretty quickly. And uh, we're willing to offer up any, you know, information that we can to you about mitigation. Uh, we'll invite you to our sessions and you know, that's how I started. I, I, I gained a mentor, Lori Jane Towns, um, from Maryland and she's really just kinda uh shepherded me through this field since I started. So uh, that's available to you just through that website. That's that's great information. Um, I I think there's probably not enough people that do this work around. Uh, at, at least um, I didn't know about this is the uh, NASAM Association until you know a few months ago. So uh, it's nice that you can uh, let people know that this, that's available and the resources that are available because it's you know our learning process never stops. Right, right. So, again, Charity, thank you so much for being on the show today. I love talking to you. And for the rest of you, PIs Declassified audience, thanks for listening. See you again next week. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 